0: Welcome to The Power of Attorney, a podcast from Rutgers Law School. I'm your host and dean of the law school, Joanna Bond. Today, I'm joined by Chris D'Alessandro, who is a proud Rutgers Law grad. And thanks so much for joining us today, Chris.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about your origin story? How How did you get to this point?
1: So I'm originally from northern New Jersey. That's where I spent most of my life, in places like Clifton, Passaic, and Rutherford, which are sort of suburbs of New York City. Um, I'm 54. I currently live in Westchester, PA. I'm married, have two children. My wife is Dr. Patricia McKernan, who is a, also a proud Rutgers graduate. She's a graduate of the DSW program. Um, she's chief of for Gadenzi, a large um, provider of services in Pennsylvania. Um Italian American, as you can tell by my last name. <laughs> raised by a single mother, which I'm very proud of, because my mom worked very hard to uh, to bring me up, to give me what I needed to succeed. Um, okay. Some other things about me: I didn't make it through high school. I dropped out when I was 16. I'd started work when I was 15, and I also started playing guitar. and I was more interested in playing guitar in heavy metal bands than I was in school. <laughs> so I did that for a couple of years. But um, you know, my family is very interested in seeing me move forward, so they convinced me to get my GED, which I did when I was 18 went to college didn't do so great so I decided to join the army and the army you know a couple years in the army taught me discipline and it taught me how to succeed and when I came out I went back to college and I did well academically and sort of got focused on getting into a career in law enforcement um because well, I had worked in a factory when I was probably 18 um one of the managers there he had been in law enforcement and he had spent many years in the military and the army and the air force. And he convinced me, he said, Hey, this is no way to live. You have to start doing something for yourself and do something to get yourself out of the situation, do other things. So he convinced me to join the army and also got me interested in law enforcement. So when I got out, I did eventually get a job with the New Jersey state parole board as a parole officer in 1997. I worked for them for 18 and a half years. Um, Retired at the rank of Lieutenant in 2015. I had, re-enlisted in the army in 2005 and uh, i actually started officer candidate school on my 36th birthday i was the oldest person in the class Um, and i have been in the army national guard since then i was commissioned as an officer in 2006 i've deployed to iraq and afghanistan still serving in the army national guard as a major i'm a logistics officer um that is Pretty much me at this point
0: that's a great story and and i love that that you were interested in, in heavy metal as a kid that's fantastic who was your favorite band when you were really playing a lot
1: uh, it was all the early thrash bands like metallica and anthrax right. and slayer and i still play in a heavy metal band to this date i do with good. guys that i've known for i think i've known one guy for like 35 years so
0: that's great. but we still
1: go out and we go on many tours you know we play like four <laughs> or five shows in a row around the area that's and it's a lot fantastic. of fun.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's great. And, and I love that your path also led you back to higher education. That's that's a fantastic story. So can you tell me a little bit about the impact of September 11th on your life?
1: So sure. I was a parole officer at the time, and I was working in Clifton. And on September 11th, I was on my way down to Trenton. I think it was to get an ID card or something. So When, as the attacks happened, I heard it on the radio, I think I was listening to Howard Stern at the time, as funny as that is, and um, at first it was being reported as an accidental uh, plane crash into the Twin Towers, but then, you know, once another plane uh, hit, it was pretty clear that it was an attack, so I did a sort of turn and burn at the uh, Turnpike Toll Plaza and just started racing my way back up, um, back towards home. Stopped at my house to make sure everything was okay. Went to my office, and there were reports coming in that uh, state offices were being attacked. Now, in retrospect, as it served as it may seem that a parole office is going to be attacked, we were all sort of uh, on guard for that. So we stood guard at the office, and um, at some point, our chain of command started asking for volunteers to go down to the uh, World Trade Center site itself to do recovery efforts, and I did wind up doing that for a day on uh, September 13th. And, um, I didn't go back after that one day was enough, but the impact that that had on me, it just really made me rethink my life. It, it made me think to, uh, get out of the box that I was living get out of my comfort zone start taking risks, doing all the things that I wanted to do. Because what I saw that day is it doesn't matter how much money you have, how much power you have, whether you're, you know, a, a guy sleeping in the street outside of the first floor or the guy in the hundred floor, when it's your time, it's your time. So, um, use your life wisely. That's what it taught me.
0: Yeah, that's that's an important lesson, um, but such a tragedy. And and so you decided to go to law school at some point. Why did you decide to go to law school and why did you pick Rutgers specifically?
1: So I had peers in the military who, were, who had gone to Rutgers Law and become attorneys. Uh, and they described to me the experience of going to law school And the profound impact it had on their thought processes, the way they looked at themselves, the way they looked at the world and things around them. And these are people who I had a great deal of respect for in terms of their intellect and their drive to succeed. And there were people that I sought to emulate. And also, my job had afforded me, my job at parole, afforded me the opportunity to go to the FBI National Academy uh, located in Quantico, Virginia, which is sort of the premier law enforcement training in the nation for law enforcement supervisors. Now at the time I was a lieutenant, but I was there with chiefs of police from some of the major cities, top level law enforcement executives. And one thing that these people had in common is that they had gone to law school. That had a big impact on me, on me as well in terms of what credentials one might want when you're moving forward your law enforcement career. But what sort of sealed it for me is uh, being in places like Iraq and Afghanistan and just seeing that the rule of law had eroded to the point were the only rights that some people had there, were the rights afforded to them by, you know, the strongmen, the warlords, the people with the most guns and the most power. And um, I also saw there that lawyers were involved in every single thing that went on there. They were the ones making policy. Many of the things that we did in a tactical sense or an operational sense on the ground in Iraq and Afghanistan, those policies were reviewed at a minimum or uh, promulgated by attorneys. So, that impressed me as well. It involved in everything from negotiations to logistics, which is what I did, um, to uh, detainee operations, which is what I did in Iraq. So that made me think that law school is a way to go. Be, be an attorney, have that door open to perhaps have an impact on the world around me and help people.
0: That's that's fantastic. I tell students that all the time that that lawyers are involved in in so much of what we do in everyday life, and and certainly you saw that up close in the military when I'm sure lawyers were were making calls about what what logistics uh, and operational initiatives were were approved or not. So that's I think that's a great up close look at at how useful the law can be, uh, and and why Rutgers did you. Was it the connection that that some of your lawyer friends had to Rutgers, the fact that they were Rutgers alums?
1: Sure. So there's a few reasons. One of the main reasons is that with the New Jersey Army National Guard, as long as you're in good standing, uh, tuition is free at any state school. So certainly when looking at different options. Going to Rutgers Law, my entire legal education, I think, cost somewhere around $13,000. And that was books and fees and various expenses because the tuition is covered. So long as you maintain your grades and you're a good standing with the National Guard. However, I'm also a graduate of Seton Hall. I went there for my master's degree in human resources. I have an Ed S. from Seton Hall. So it was sort of a tough choice. I looked at both schools, but Rutgers seemed to be more what I was interested in. Rutgers seemed to teach people the more concrete skills that are needed to win in the courtroom where Seton Hall seemed to take more of an academic approach to the law. Now, both are valuable. However, I wanted to learn how to win for my clients. And I liked Rucker's history of activism. And I wanted to learn how to accomplish that, how to be an activist, how to advocate for causes that I believed in. And I I feel that Rucker has filled that role.
0: That's great to hear. That's certainly what we aim to do. Uh, Okay, so now it's time for a softball round robin. What was your favorite and least favorite class in law school?
1: So it's hard to say because I I liked all my professors. I can't think of one professor I didn't like, but certainly uh, Professor Marcherson's tort class, which was the first law class that I was in, that had a huge impact on me because the first day of class, she was cold calling students uh, to answer about the reading. And that is something that I think is really valuable, to be taken out of your comfort zone. It's part of the reason I joined the military. I like the feeling of having butterflies in my stomach and asking myself, what are you going to do if you're called on? What are you going to do if this happens? Because then you have to think, and that's how we evolve, and that's how we become better problem solvers, and we learn how to think creatively and how we're going to address these situations that come up in a spur of the moment. And that's the way the courtroom is nobody's going to take their time and ask you whether you've done your research or you have the correct cases in front of you or whether you've prepared your witnesses. It's either you, you have or you haven't. Right. Um, there were other courses, certainly, that I liked. Um, Professor Lohr's deposition class was great. That prepared me for depositions. Um, Professor Overdeek, if I'm saying his name wrong, I apologize, but he had a philosophy in the law class. And in my first divorce trial, I used one of the Egalitarian philosophies that he had discussed when advocating for a client who had spent her life providing care for the family. And I equated that into what would this look like in terms of if she was earning a wage for doing these same duties as the professionals that provide these for people, right? And it was a that's compelling true. argument. I thought that was interesting.
0: Right. Oh, I'm um, sure and, John Overdeek would love that story, so. I'll, um, oh, yeah, I'm no, telling. I've told it to him
1: already, because oh, as yeah, soon as I right. did it, I said, hey, I, I snuck this into a case. I'm <laughs> sure I'm not the first lawyer, but it was very right. good. And also, uh, Professor Kaplan's sex crimes class, I had read her editorial in the New York Times, and I supervised the sex offender unit, well, part of the sex offender unit for the state parole board. And I also supervised sex offenders for many years. So her editorial in the New York Times, I thought it was brave and I thought it was, although I didn't agree, I thought it was compelling because people need to speak about these things and people try to speak about them and say, let's have a different perspective on these intractable issues and they're excoriated for it. So it takes a lot of courage to come out and write something like that. So I took a class because I wanted to hear what she had to say and it was a great class. That's Um, great. So, so, yeah, I, I think Rutgers, when you go there, in terms of value for the faculty and what you're learning, and, uh, you know, of course, Professor Rothman, RLA, but that's, you know, a completely different thing because, you know, me and my partners, we consider him our mentor. Um, but, cool. yeah, Rutgers, you can't go wrong with the faculty there.
0: All right. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, RLA in just a second. But in the meantime, um, let me ask you a food-related question. What was your favorite place to eat near law school?
1: Probably the the Victor Pub um, down by the river, and I still go there sometimes when I'm at court. I'll walk down there because it's a nice walk from the law school. You get a little exercise. You get out of there for a little bit, especially when we were working at RLA. Sometimes, you know, the pressure's on, and, uh, you know, you just dealt with a lot of interesting cases, and now it's time to take a walk and talk about things. Um, Not particularly in Camden, but in I think in Penn the pub, great old school New Jersey place. Good. It's like a dark cave with a salad buffet and, you know, they serve all these old school sort of, uh, I guess, comfort food dishes. That's another great place, definitely.
0: Yeah, that's great. I haven't tried that one. I'll have to try it. Uh, okay. And, and so tell me, before we get to our conversation about RLA, which, which I want to ask you about in just a second, but before we do that, what, what would you say is the most important thing you learned during law school?
1: Not any one thing, but what I've often told my wife in our conversations about our mutual educational accomplishments is that law school changed the way I think. It took me from one level of thought to another. So I guess thought isn't the right word, but it it changed the way that I look at things, the way I look at the world. So I look at things now and I don't, look at it just for what it is. I say, well, what else is this? So it's not just this is a rock, right? And I'll look at it and say, well, this is a rock, but does it have any value in economic sense or whose rock is this? Or does this rock belong here? Did somebody put it here and it's a different kind of rock and maybe somebody could be sued because somebody will trip over it. Right. Um, so, I mean, that's sort of simplistic, but it, I, I feel that it evolved my thinking to a different level and it changed me. That's the most important thing that law school did for me.
0: That's fantastic. Yeah, I think we we teach people how to be problem solvers and, and look at the world in a different way. Uh, and your example is a perfect one. Uh, okay, so now I want to talk about Rutgers Law Associates. After graduating, you became part of Rutgers Law Associates. Can you tell us what RLA is and, and what your involvement in it was?
1: Rutgers Law Associates is a fellowship program through Rutgers Law, and it's a small law firm run by Professor Rothman out of both Newark and Camden. And it provides low-cost services to citizens in New Jersey, primarily low-income or modest-income people. But also, if a case is a value to the fellows to work on, then sometimes they'll take cases from people with more money. However, if it's something fellows can learn from We'll take it on something novel or something interesting. And at Rutgers Law, it's run in the vein of a medical internship. And doctors get together. They discuss cases. They talk about how they're approaching medical problems, what diagnosis is made, how that's going to be treated. And it's very similar with the law. So we would have rounds where we would sit on the holodeck, I believe, when we were in Camden, and we would say... Okay, we each have these cases while well, I'm going to trial. What, that, what is that looking like? What issues are you coming up with? And then Professor Rothman would offer us recommendations, and he was there constantly to offer us guidance. And it also teaches you how to run a small law firm, which in my case is really good because that's what me and my partners did when we got out of Rutgers Law Associates. And that, th- those are things that you may not think of. So things, how to send a fax how to scan right. documents, how to put motion together, how to put interrogatories together, all these things that are difficult to learn when you're on your own. But when you're part of this collective, part of this fellowship, and you're all working together towards common goals, it teaches you all these things. And also, it teaches you courtroom demeanor, because I think the second day I was there, I was in the courtroom with one of the other fellows. Um, it, so I, I would say that Rutgers Law Associates, besides just being a fellowship, right, of course, you get paid for it, which is nice. But it it puts you in that. So in the military, we have a thing called left seat, right seat when you trade out in positions. So I come in in Afghanistan and I'm going to take over the supply yard. I will work with the person who's already in that position for a couple of weeks before I take over. And then they move to the, the left seat and then or the right seat and then we're talking from there and then that person eventually moves on so it's sort of like that where you're you're getting this guidance why you practice the law and when you're done you're more competent as an attorney and you're ready to get out there and advocate for clients where i think if you just graduate from law school and then you just go out on your own that that's got to be very tough
0: I think that is that is challenging. And and it's wonderful to have this program that's really based on that medical apprenticeship model, uh, where you're getting a lot of feedback and learning the whole time that you're, you're out there representing clients as a Rutgers Law associate. And so, tell me a little bit about what happened after you finished the fellowship. And I know you and two other Rutgers Law associates started a firm together. So, tell me a little bit about what that looked like.
1: Sure. So, when I got to the fellowship after graduating in 2018. Uh, Keith Peterson, who's one of my law partners now, he started with me at Rutgers Law Associates. Limwood Donaldson, I believe he graduated in 16. So he was 16, 17. I'm sorry, but he was already at the fellowship. So while we were there, he finished up and he briefly went out into private practice. But as we got closer to our graduation date from the fellowship, we started talking and we were talking about various things we might do. I was thinking about getting back into law enforcement leadership. I'd applied for a couple of jobs, but really didn't interest me. And when we talked, none of us were interested in working for anybody else. We felt that we had the skills to go off on our own and open a law firm. We had the modest money to start the law firm. And Linwood, because he had been on his own, he knew some of the mechanics of it, such as securing the proper insurance, leasing, things of that nature. And we had learned all that at Rutgers Law. We learned how to use Clio, which is the software we use. We learned how to use eCourts. We learned how to file documents and all the office things that we needed. We already knew what we needed because we had seen it at Rutgers Law. So we needed a scanner printer. We needed a shredder. We needed desks. So we got together and we said, we know it's a risk, but you know what? It's time to start our own law firm and go out on our own so that's what we did. We started a law firm in September 2019, was our official start. And we did have some clients that came with us from Rutgers Law Associates, you know, with the blessing of uh, Professor Rothman. But we uh, immediately started getting into domestic violence advocacy, and that remains a huge part of our practice. And we've just taken it from there.
0: That's great. And, and you're now four years in, uh, and, and has it been a fun and successful four years?
1: It has been a great four years so far. We've been very successful. So our first year, we did not think we were going to be successful. We thought we were going to struggle, and we thought we were going to have to kind of scramble to make ends meet. That's not what happened. We were overwhelmed with business, and that's been going since. And we have essentially as much business as we can take, and probably more at this point. So we're looking at maybe expanding. So that's something I would suggest that people are prepared for. It's it's good to have contingencies or a plan for the worst, but instead perhaps plan for the best, too, because that can be just as challenging.
0: <laughs> right. So. That's a good problem to have, though. That's, that's great. Now, I know you recently represented a, a Rutgers student in a defamation case where his ex-girlfriend publicly defamed him after he tipped investigators to her identity as a January 6th insurrectionist. And the judge ordered her... To pay him $50,000 in damages, that's that's an amazing victory in a, a short time since founding the firm. You mentioned online that uh, it's more than just a court victory. Can you can you say a little bit more about that?
1: Sure. Well, my client is a young man. He's a rocker student. And he, when he recognized his ex-girlfriend as being the individual inside of the Capitol, talking about having Nancy Pelosi's laptop, words to that effect. And then there was uh, some traffic on Discord, which is a um, a chat, basically a chat used by gamers and other people to communicate, very popular. But when he saw some things on that from her as well, he reported to the FBI. And almost immediately, she took out a protection from a, abuse order against him and uh, s- explained her flight from authorities in the context of being a domestic violence victim, now my client asserted that that was not true. Um, in the aftermath of that, she had she the uh, Riley Williams had a friend of hers who had or an associate who had also gone to the Capitol, although he had not entered. But he went online, talked to news sources like the Epic Times, uh, sort of these right leaning sources, and also some other. Uh, news sources, even in U- the UK, like the Daily Mail, things like that, mm-hmm. saying things like, My client was a Russian. Um, no, he's a stalker. Uh, just things that weren't true. My client didn't know this guy. Um, this this man did not know my client. And in saying that he was a Russian, my client took that as he was implying that he was a Russian agent. Um, so, I, I, and my client was also interested in a career in computer science. Um, so, You know, these things can impact his career in the future, and this stuff's out there on the internet, and it's going to be out there forever. So we we brought suit against them. Very difficult to serve them. I had to learn some new court procedures, uh, you know, service by substitution. I ended up serving her public defender, her federal public defender, and um, getting leave of the court to serve the other defendant through Facebook because he had an active Facebook page. We did that um, after some conversations with the actual uh, federal public defender of Pennsylvania, the judge and I, and uh, Ms. Williams attorney, I was able to serve her successfully. And, but after that, um, they did not respond. I can't say why they didn't respond to my opinion. They just decided they didn't want to. So when you don't respond to a lawsuit, a default judgment can be expected. And that is what happened.
0: It's a fascinating case. And, and, a great example of how you learn things like different ways to serve process, right? And out of necessity, you get creative with the within the rules. Uh, that's great.
1: And, and I, I apologize. And why do I think that it's you know more of a victory than just for my client? Because whatever people think about what happened on January sixth, that's not the way to do things. We have a process here in place, and the process is the rule of law. And these are things that. We have here that people don't have other places, and if we don't appreciate it and use it, who knows how long we'll have it. So I view this as a victory for the rule of law because my client used the system that's in place, even though it was frustrating and it was long, and even though who knows if he'll ever uh, recover any of the damages that were awarded to him. However, he used the system, he trusted in it, and in the end, he achieved justice. And I think that's a lesson for people who may— be doubting whether the, there is justice out there, there is, it's not always easy and we have an adversarial system and there's two sides to every story, but you know, the rule of law does work in our country and people need to respect that. So that's why I thought it was a victory for the rule of law as well.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. And it, it must be gratifying from a, from a lawyer's perspective too, to, to see your client through that kind of process.
1: It, it is especially a young man who, you know, he did the right thing.
0: Right. Maybe that's right. the
1: most I could say about it.
0: And, and what about some of your other wins? Are there any that you can share with us?
1: Sure. Um, so er, early on, I took on a case. And I, it, it was a case that involved the two-year look back win, window for uh, sexual misconduct, um, that Governor Murphy had passed, I think, in 2019, and I was uh, the first attorney to successfully bring a New Jersey LAD claim under that. Um, I realized it was something novel. Uh, we fought off two motions to dismiss, but we won that. So I was—I thought that was a good win for my client that we successfully got that through um, because there was some question of whether that two-year window applied. But I thought it clearly did because, um, you know, and the subject matter of something like sexual assault or sexual harassment, I, I, I don't think that it can ever be separated from the sex of the person who's subject to the harassment. I think it's inherent in in whatever sex you are, right? If you're male, if you're female, um, whatever your gender is. And I believe there was a case recently that came out as well, I, th- I think from the New Jersey Supreme Court. I, I might be wrong here. But... That sort of affirm that saying that, yeah, these two are inseparable, right? If this happened to somebody, if somebody was sexually assaulted or sexually harassed, then um, clearly um, their their identity comes into it because that's what the harassment was predicated on, right? Um, but for that, they would not have been harassed. So that was something that that we did as a firm, and I thought that was a good victory for our client and also for other victims. So,
0: mm-hmm. great. And and talk a little bit about running a law firm, there must be parts that you enjoy and parts that you don't care for that much. Can you say a little bit more about that?
1: Sure. So certainly enjoying the fruits of your labor is something that is good. You work hard and there's a reward for it. There's also, though, all the anxiety that comes with having to pick which cases you take and then how you administer them. The work that we do is very sensitive we work with a lot of victims as i said we do primarily victim side domestic violence so we deal with situations that i think a lot of other lawyers do not want to deal with and um, you know sometimes people can be victims and they could find themselves even though they're victims being prosecuted by their abuser which is something we deal with and there's a lot that goes into that so Sometimes we find ourselves in situations that we're not sure how to handle. We'll take on a case, and we we also do some employment law, things like military discrimination, um, racial discrimination, discrimination based on sex and gender. So in some of those cases, we're up against very big law firms. So I had one case where I think I was up against – I called them the lawyer platoon during motion hearings because there was – I think I was up against six other lawyers at one point. Wow. So, so you have to learn how to deal with that, right? How do you fend off three motions to dismiss instead of one? Um, you have to learn these processes that just by nature of our lack of experience in terms of time, we just haven't um, – dealt with yet. So, you know, do we have to have this in within 14 days or 10 days? And what's the difference between family and civil? And then anybody that does family is going to can tell you it's sort of the wild west of law. The way family lawyers talk to each other, the way we talk to each other in court is very, very different than civil. Civil is exactly that. It's civil, right? Polite and civil. Everybody's civil to each other. Um, Sometimes people get a little testy, but Switching from family, especially from domestic fines to civil, you have to learn how to tone it down. So we had to learn how to do that. Um, so that's the, the biggest challenge is simply learning how to do these things that other lawyers take for granted or big law firms who just hand out to an associate and say, here, learn how to do this. And associate number two, go do the research. For us, it's no. Um if Keith Peterson has a case, like he has a, a some cases right now that involve a lot of research. One of his cases is on appeal. So he does all the research. He learns how to file an appeal. I think he had one with, like, he, he had to send it in three giant packages to the uh, appellate division because that's how much it was. But I'm sure that's not unusual. But for him, it's a first time. Where do you have to put the staple, right? He's stapling right. the stuff together. <laughs> we do all that stuff for ourselves. So that mm-hmm. is the challenging part about um, having our own law firm and that, like I said, learning how to deal with success, right? How, how do you sometimes learning how to handle success is as difficult as learning how to handle a setback. Um, and also I will say that we don't lose very often. So when we do, it's a matter of concern and we sit around and look at each other and say, how do we lose? Right? Every right. lawyer loses sometimes. Um, Absolutely, but, but if you're uh, winning
0: a lot, it makes it harder to actually lose.
1: We, we figure it out. But uh, yeah. sometimes we say, how did I lose that one? You know, and we kind of examine and pick apart everything that we did. And sometimes we say, ah, well, that's why we lost. Right. We didn't do this right. Or we didn't do that right. But most of the time we just chalk it up to when you go into court, sometimes you don't know what's going to happen, especially in family court. It's a court of fairness. Right. So right. what does one party think is fair and the other party thinks is fair? It's not always the same thing. So
0: Right. Well, it must be nice to have two other law partners to, to compare notes with and and debrief at the end of a long case.
1: Definitely. And we learned at Rutgers Law Associates that working as a collective, we're much stronger than if we work as individuals. So we all sit in the same office and we share ideas. We do work from home sometimes, but we find ourselves in the office at least two or three times a week all together, and we discuss our cases and we offer each other input. And creative criticism. And we tell people, uh, well, we tell each other and not other people things that need to be said. So if one of us writes a brief that isn't good, we'll tell the other person, well, hey, this needs some editing, right? Or maybe you don't want to use those words, or maybe have you considered this part of the law? Or sometimes I'll get anxious about something another lawyer says to me, hey, I'm going to do this. And I'll say, you can't do that. But then I'll ask my partners, can they do that? I'll say, oh, yeah, they can. So <laughs> um, that's why it's good to bounce things off of other people. And I think if I was a, you know, a solo or a sole practitioner, I, I wouldn't have that. So very important lesson to work as a team and get things done for your clients.
0: It sounds like you carried some of the best parts of Rutgers Law Associates into practice with you, which is fantastic. So my last question for you is what what advice would you give to law students who may have an interest in someday opening up their their own law firm?
1: So they need to be tough. And I think Rutgers Law teaches lawyers how to be tough. I don't think Rutgers Law um, is a place for the faint of heart, in my opinion, especially not in your first day of torts class and the professor is cold calling people and saying, I'll wait till you get the answer, (laughs) right? That didn't happen to me. It happened to somebody else. But that was really cool. Um, So I I think that lawyers need to learn how to be tough. If you're going to start your own practice, especially if you haven't been in law very long. Other lawyers who are more experienced are going to try to break you down by saying, Oh, well, I realize you've only been a lawyer for six months, you know, things like that. But, you know, the way to handle it is that after you've beaten them, you think to yourself, Well, I guess I learned more in that six months than you did in your 40 years because I just beat you. Right. What? So, um, have faith in yourself. Like, don't go in and think you're going to lose just because somebody has decades of experience on you. What we found is that some law firms do the same things the same ways over and over again, despite their clients. They don't listen to their clients. We were taught to be client-centered. We listen to our clients. We listen to their needs. We listen to what they have to say. We listen to their facts and we look for novel solutions. So lawyers wanting to start their own firm, they have to realize it's you. It's your reputation. It's your win or your loss. It's your ability to interact with other attorneys, courtroom demeanor, very important. Uh, new lawyers, when they go in a courtroom, don't go in there with an attitude. If the judge tells you something, do it. If the judge tells you, hey, I've heard enough of that and it's time, time for that to end, then you need to stop, right? Um, if the judge heard your argument and doesn't want to hear it again, it, there's no need to argue with a judge. That's just silly. Um, you're not doing your client any favors. Uh, that's something I would suggest, which I see over and over again. Uh, that and learn how to do things as correctly as you can because some things there's no format for you're going to just have to learn it. How do you do emotion consolidate? I didn't know I had to do one. Um, I asked Professor Rothman, he kind of set me on the right track, but there was no form for it, right? You have to do these things yourself. How do you do an order to show cause? How do you do these different things? You have to figure that out, but it's better to do it right the first time or as right as you can than just. Uh, say, I'm just going to do whatever and submit it and see what happens. Um, So yeah, just have faith in yourself. Be a risk taker. Take the qualified risks that you have to, because without taking risks, um, when you have your own law firm, it's unlikely you're going to be successful if you're risk adverse.
0: Yeah, that's great. Great advice. for for both our current students and and any prospective students who may be thinking about law school with the idea of a a solo practice at the end of it. That's fantastic. Well, thanks so much, Chris, for sharing your inspirational story. And and, uh, we really appreciate it at we we did have a conversation with Andrew Rothman about Rutgers Law Associates. Also, that's on another episode of the podcast. So, um, so anyone who is interested can get more information about Rutgers Law Associates. It's, it's a program that we are very proud of. So, I'm so glad that you were able to be a part of that program and and that it helped launch your successful career. So, we'll we'll continue to follow your success. Thanks again, Chris.
1: Thank you very much, Dean. Appreciate it.
0: Take care. The Power of Attorney is a production of Rutgers Law School. With two locations just minutes from New York City and Philadelphia, Rutgers Law offers the prestige and reputation of a large nationally known university with a personal small campus experience. Learn more today by visiting us at law.rutgers.edu.